Hello, fellow readers. Today, we are bringing you stories of the everyday in writing with Terry Ann Adams and Ompile Ralea. Welcome to A Reader's Community. I'm your host, Fasti Collins. I am so happy to be back with another season of the podcast. Each episode in this season will consist of a conversation with a writer about a recent book. And then I'll talk to a reader who will give me a few book recommendations around a theme that is inspired by the featured book. These are readers that we consider as also being part of the community, readers of South African and African literature. Our featured reader today is a great example of such a reader. Umpile Ralea is the founder of Bookamoso, which has been creating an online home for readers for many years now. She reviews books, keeps her followers up to date on book events taking place, and is an advocate of South African and African writing, especially writing by black women. The theme today is narratives of the everyday. This is a feature that I really love in writing. Stories about ordinary people living ordinary lives and books that are about the ordinary business of living, work, family, domestic life, and what might be considered small events in relationships. Today's featured author is Terry Ann Adams. Their first book was a novel called Those Who Live in Cages, and they have just published a collection of short stories called White Chalk, which is what I talked to them about today. It's a beautiful example of the everyday in writing. These are stories about home, about family, about growing up, and about memory. It's a warm and engaging collection that feels like a visit to a familiar place that somehow one hasn't encountered nearly enough in writing. Here's my conversation with Terry Ann. Hey, Terry Ann. Hey, Christy. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's been a while, hey? It has been a while. It's been two years since we last recorded together. Um, can we start by you introducing yourself? Sure, I'll do that. My name is Terry Ann Adams. I am born and bred in Joburg, but hiding out in Krugersdorp. I am a writer. I've written two books, Those Live in Cages, and my newly published uh, collection of short stories, White Chalk. And I'm all about self-liberation and freedom and just everybody um, being treated fairly. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm. That comes through in your stories. So the new book is White Chalk, and it's a collection of short stories. Your first book was a novel called Those Who Live in Cages. And this is a collection that's it's hard to summarize because there's such a variety of, of characters and voices and experiences. It's a collection that's at times warm and funny and at times heartbreaking. And I really, really enjoyed this collection. I think they're absolutely amazing stories. So I want to start at the beginning. How did this collection come about and how did you end up writing short stories? It's actually very funny. Like before those living cages, I experimented with prose. I never thought I would be able to write a novel. So I started like honing my craft from being a poet to, to writing short stories. And that's how I got into actually writing prose. Mm. And then my first big project turns out to be a novel. But I always had these one, one or two short stories in the back pocket. And then my publisher, Nadia Khutam, says to me, what do you have that's already written? And I was like, I've got like two short stories. She's like, good, you've got 12 weeks to come up with 16 more. 
and then we're going to make a collection. And she, she legit pushed me. It was between January and April. She legit pushed me to get all 18 done for her. And I sent the first uh, 10 and she read them. And I sent the last eight and that's when she passed on. But she was the one that like drilled me and was like, you're going to finish this in three months. Like it's happening. Sure. So 18 stories in three months. And and in the middle of that to lose Nadia, this was middle last year, right? That that we lost it to COVID. Yeah, it was April last year. Her death anniversary is around the corner. What a What a difficult process it must have been. Yeah, it was... I didn't want anything to do with the with the collection when Nadia passed. I mm. felt so like forlorn. I was like, I don't know what to do with myself, know what to do with my writing. Mm. But my family actually pushed me and were like, Well, you did finish all of these stories, you gotta do something with it. And I then started speaking to the guys at Jakarta and I was like, Okay, this is a project Nadia and I was working on. And they were very interested to see what I had come up with. And we then rebuilt the journey from there. Mm. I'm kind of stunned at the, the short time frame because of the variety entailed in the, in the collection. Like, I feel like you inhabit so many different people in this collection. So some of the stories are written in dialogue. Some of them are written as if the, the character is directly addressing the reader. Some of them are written in a first-person, kind of like chatty, conversational way. And that's that's a style that I recognize from Those Who Live in Cages as well. It's kind of a, I'm like truly like inhabiting the character and speaking in the character's voice. And I got the sense when I read those stories in particular that enjoyment filtered through. I got a sense that like those, those pieces are often very fun and very playful and often quite funny. So I wanted to test my suspicion that that's something that you really enjoy. It's a really fun space for you to inhabit. Yeah, almost every story I can relate to a personal experience in my life. Mm. But some of them were so based off of real life and the funny parts of real life. For example, Matric Dance and just the way Laurel goes on about herself. (laughs) And I kept like imagining those girls in high school. And um, when I did, when I wrote Operation <laughs> Modern and I was like, even that story for me, it's supposed to be this like deep commentary on what happened in schools in Joburg South once black kids were allowed in. A lot of the white teachers became super racist and mm. didn't teach them. And it's supposed to be this commentary on that, but I'm writing about like kids flooding the school with sand. And so it was like very fun to write. And um, what's this now is I think also one of my favorite stories because I just got to write about a stupid like he, he's just looking for his sneakers, you know. So it's, it's like weird small things yeah. that I found very funny in, uh, when I was writing it. Yeah, a lot of the um, the stories involving teenagers somehow are very funny. Like all of the, the teenage shenanigans I really enjoyed. So your first book was set in El Dorado Park. So it says on the back that these stories are also set in El Dorado Park, even though not every story necessarily makes reference to it. And I know that that's not a coincidence. Could you talk a little bit about writing El Dorado Park into the canon? I think for me, it was, it was writing about Aldo's and especially also fictionalizing Aldo's at some point. Like, for example, in the Owens, there's no such areas in Aldo's like the Harlem or the Hollywood. 
but I wanted to show a certain thing about the place without having to be explicit about it. Mm. And I felt like I wanted to show that you get different characters in the same way that you get the girl who's coming home from America and her family is is in in the township. You also get a story like Modrefontaine, where they are in the township, you know. Mm. So I wanted to show like different people and especially different colored people and show that colored people are not one dimensional. Mm. And that's why every main character in the book is a colored person. Mm. That's also such a nice thing about like short story as a form. Because you're exploring all of these different perspectives and different aspects of life and different people, it gives this very nuanced and complex portrayal of a place. So there's also something interesting that, I, that struck me about this, which is a relationship with home, specifically as an adult, like having left home and maybe one goes to visit, but is independent now and maybe sometimes goes back. And there's a few stories that make me think of that relationship of how one relates to home as the adult child of parents, you know? So there's the story of the one you mentioned, homecoming, of someone coming back from the United States for the first time in 10 years. There's the story of the obligatory yearly Easter lunch. Then there's the sort of nostalgic and warm and quite lovely portrayal of Ma's house. So I wanted to ask you to reflect on that, if this resonates with you at all, this idea of like our understanding of home going through a kind of reconfiguration as we grow up and then finding home to be quite surprising when we revisit our own memories or when we visit the actual place. Yeah, no, I, coming home is such a, a big theme for me in my mm-hmm. life because I, I left to go and study in Pretoria, which is not really very far from Joburg, but it's very far from the mindset yeah. of Eldorado Park and Bella Vista, which I left mm. in Joburg. So when I came back, everything was shiny and new. And I actually got to see my home in, in, in a different light. And it was that, that Mars house nostalgia was, you know, me going home in my teen years yeah. to my grandmother's house. That's that nostalgia of, of, of Mars house. But when we get to the girl who does the obligatory Easter lunch... That's me now. <laughs> yeah. And this grown up person who's like at home, but not really in it anymore. And the nostalgia of, of it's almost that like childhood nostalgia is gone. And I wanted to show like the three different stages at, at which you separate yourself from your yeah. parents' home um, to eventually get your own mm-hmm. identity and how sometimes you must come back to get your own identity. Ah, that's such a lovely way of thinking about it. And definitely resonates with the story Homecoming. So Homecoming is, this character is queer. And she kind of, she has a fraught relationship with home, partly because of that, but also because of her difficult family relationships. But then the thing is, when you leave home, it's home doesn't stay the same either. It also changes. And then she's kind of, well, but this is how I read it. She's surprised by her very warm welcoming. Like she's expecting judgment, but then she experiences love. I definitely wanted to show this sort of surprise element where everything she thought she was going to get, she didn't get. And to show that she also has changed in 10 years, but other people have also changed in 10 years. So she didn't expect Mm. 
that change in them whereas they they had also had a long time to think about everything that had happened and her being gone absolutely can i ask you to read from mars house i want to capture some of that warm and lovely sense of home for the listeners okay so i'm reading um from mars house the first paragraph the smell of jungle oats wakes us up in the morning Ma has a pot cooking on the stove. This is the new stove that my uncle bought. The primer still stands, proud like a relic, in a museum. The dust on it will soon be wiped away. Yes, we don't use it, but that doesn't mean it must get faulty. Ma scolds us when we protest about cleaning the unused artifact. In the kitchen next to Ma is my mother. It's Sunday. There's no work. She chats away about her job and the people she sees more than she sees us. Later, she will go to the salon to get her hair pulled and twisted and braided into box braids so that she can look professional in the corporate world. We have to get ready for church. Our clothes are ironed and laid out. Ma does not go, but instead she prepares an impressive Sunday lunch with all seven colors present and accounted for. My uncle puts on the OJs, and while Ma disapproves of the devil's music, she hums along. We polish our shoes with kiwi shoe polish at night and make sure an older cousin irons our uniforms. Ma asks to check everyone's homework and puts us to bed by 8 o'clock sharp. This is Ma's house, the epicenter, the watchtower, the fortress of solitude and the HQ of our family. Ma's house smells like handy andy, preserved peaches and homemade bread. It smells like oat biscuits and English curry. We eat Christmas lunches of leg of lamb, beef tongue, corned beef, and gammon. Ma roasts the leg the night before, staying up so that it cooks slowly. She listens to Judy Voucher and sings along with my aunts, who had already had too many ciders for Christmas. The Temptations album will be played the next day when us children are shooed away from the kitchen. Ah, that's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful evocation. It's all these like small details that make up family life and home that you've captured there. I, I love that story. Can you t tell me about the, I guess it's called an epigraph at the beginning and the end, the quotes by Poppy Adams? So Poppy Adams is my grandmother and she, uh -huh. when I was in varsity, she would always be like, when are you coming home? When are you coming home? And then <laughs> I'd come home and she'd go, you don't need an invite to come home. <laughs> so when are you coming home? <laughs> so yeah, she was very like, she was Ma, we called her Ma, and mm. her house was that house. Yeah. A few tweaks here and there, but literally the feeling of that story is a dedication mm. to my grandmother and the matriarch that she was for us. Oh, and that's so meaningful. Terry, and you mentioned when you introduced yourself that you are someone who cares about freedom and fairness and people being treated fairly. So apart from these stories, there's also a sense in which they're really doing the work. They're educational or political. So I'm thinking about, for instance, a couple of stories have quite an explicit feminist bent, I would say, like the one about the two sisters who are talking about their periods, the one who has endometriosis, and the younger one who just starts her period, and the various kinds of stigma and discrimination that they encounter because of that. And I'm thinking about the last story, which is someone who wakes up in hospital after a suicide attempt and in her thoughts is the way that movies portray mental illness and how that leads to misconceptions about mental illness. 
So that story is kind of a corrective to that. So is this part of what you set out to do, this kind of, I don't know, educational or political element of the stories, or is that just something that naturally arises from telling stories that, that have their roots in truth? Yeah, there are some stories where I wanted to be very explicit about it. Madness and Civilization is one of them. Mm. And that story actually came from me having a conversation with my psychologist mm. about movies. And I have um, bipolar disorder type 2. So often when I say that, you know, people get a certain way that they already think about me. There's already a view they have of, of bipolar disorder that has been shaped by movies. Mm. And then I decided I'm going to write the story about how dangerous it is to have these perceptions because then you have the character who then gets beaten up because mm. she has psychosis and how that is seen as okay because of the portrayals of psychosis in movies like Girl Interrupted. And, you know, so that one, I really did want to be very explicit about it. But Red Roses, that came from me just wanting to write about periods. Because I just mm. thought of every experience a human has that has trauma. And periods is one of them. And I just wanted to, to, yeah. to write a story about how, how traumatic it can be to be a, a person who has periods. Yeah, totally. And I love how you hold nothing back in that story. So you mentioned that these stories all come from personal experience. And I was thinking about the podcast we recorded for Open Book in 2020, where you, you mentioned at that time that you were explicitly not writing about albinism because you felt that that was somewhere you weren't able to go yet. But in this collection, there's two stories about characters with albinism. So I was curious... What changed for you between 2020 and now and what enabled you to take that on in this collection? I was going on one of my self-righteous rants about how there are no children's books for children with albinism. And um, my husband was actually like, then why don't you just write one? And I was like, <laughs> you know, I don't want to. And I'm giving up these, all these excuses. And then I actually sat back and I thought about it. And I was like, there are experiences that I have as a person with albinism, that other people with albinism also have, that they saw mm. in Talia in those living cages, even though Talia was such a silent character. So what more if I decide to put our experiences to the fore? And um, mm. Sunday morning was deeply personal because I belonged to a group like that, where there was knots and marching and all those type of things. So all mm. the things that affect Lala's character did affect me as well. And I, I needed to mm. almost purge. And luckily I was, in 2020, I didn't go to therapy. In 2021, I did. So I actually could write these things without, you know, being too hurt about the actual experiences that I was holding in. Mm. Okay, yeah, so, so going to therapy was an essential part of, of that process. I sometimes feel there's this misconception that, that writing is cathartic and does the work of therapy, but maybe it's more true that therapy is required to do the work of writing. Yeah, you, you need a therapist. If you want to be a writer, you need a therapist. <laughs> yeah, it was, therapy was so instrumental in me writing the short story collection because my, my therapist, he works a lot on your memories 
mm-hmm. and trying to configure your brain to put in preferred memories so that you can have better emotions when you're um, attached to terrible memories. Mm. Um, so we worked a lot with memory and, and memory making. And in a way, every week I was telling him my life story, almost or like autobiographically mm. letting him know who I am. And it that storytelling opened up like a door for me into my memories that I could take and put into stories mm. that I'd never thought of before. So yeah, therapy was the, the thing that fueled the writing. That's so interesting. So did you find that in writing, did you also enact that, that strategy of preferred memory of trying to associate different emotions with, with memories? I found that, yeah, I, I, I wanted different outcomes for characters. So what would, would what have been the preferred outcome if this was my life? What would I have wanted, ooh, English, to be <laughs> the preferred outcome? And that's why I think I write more happy endings than yeah. you get in, in those 11 cages where Lala walks away and Andrea, her family, welcomes her back. Mm. And, you know, there's only like one Okay, no, let me not say one or two. There are a couple of heartbreaking stories in there, <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to, you know, do the preferred thing like, and definitely own my narrative and, and my point mm, of view. Absolutely. So those stories that we've just mentioned, the uh, madness and civilization, and I'm also thinking about Beaches, which is the other story of featuring a character with albinism, which is just following her throughout her day. And then as we follow her, we also... We see with her like all of the microaggressions and kind of discrimination and that she encounters in her daily life which i thought was a very powerful story to tell a, a powerful way of telling that story so in both those stories the characters encounter either a younger character or a character with the same experience but maybe less experience of it so the narrating character is kind of in a position to offer empathy or support or something like that and this made me think of I don't know if this is a like a therapeutic practice. Maybe it is, but it's. I think it's part of sort of doing the work, um, and that is you know imagining your younger self and reaching out to your younger self and providing like the the empathy and the care that maybe one didn't get as a as a small child. That that's the sense that I got from reading those stories is that particular empathy one has for one's younger self. Does that resonate with you at all from those stories? You're actually saying exactly what my psychologist said when I sent him Madness and Civilization. Really? <laughs> he's, like, he's like, okay, so I see <laughs> that you're reaching out to your younger self <laughs> when you didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> and you're trying to give her a lifeline. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, um, definitely. With Beaches, it is, it is very, yeah, I... I've always encountered adults that could see what was going on but did nothing mm. and adults that were very complacent and adults that were also very involved mm. in my discrimination. And I always just wanted to have another person with albinism in my life. I was very alone. I didn't have contact with yeah. people with albinism. So at that time, I just wanted like a, maybe a teenager, an adult just to tell me it gets better or it gets worse, or it stays this way. Mm. And that's why I ended it like that, to show almost like a glimmer of hope. But is it really hope? Because she's going to teach her her same unhealthy 
coping mechanism. Mm. Um, so, but it's still at least a lifeline, yeah. even if it is an unhealthy one. Um, in madness and civilization, it's a more healthy relationship, and 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 Aiden actually helps her yeah. realize that you know she's got things to live for. And I also wanted to show that I wanted to show how people younger than me have come to me at my lowest and I've been like, no, dude, like, let's do it this way. Let's go on TikTok. Let's do so, yeah, they, it's, it's almost like the inverse of each other with either the older person coming down mm. or the younger person reaching up. Yeah. And madness and civilization, I think, what does Aiden say? Um, something like, People will tell you there's something wrong with you, but there's there's nothing wrong with you. That message, it's easy to go throughout one's whole childhood without hearing that essential message, you know? I think this collection strikes a perfect balance between, you know, stories that are sort of lighter and more fun while still being substantial, and then the heartbreaking stories. Like, I think it's perfectly balanced. It makes it so wonderful to read. So I wanted to know, is, did you did you have to throw things out to achieve that? Did you have to tweak stories in order to achieve that? Or is it just a happy accident that that balance is so perfect? Some of it, especially in the later half, was thought out very specifically. I remember when the later half has a lot of, like you said, the more political stories. And mm. I I had to then write Operation Modern to be silly enough to offset um. something like Birthday Bash mm. or even madness and civilization that comes after it. So um, there were times when I had to, Mars House is one of those stories that I deliberately wrote to be lighthearted and to be like warm and fuzzy because it was coming after Sunday morning. So it, you know, it needed yeah. that like breather and that break. So yeah, I, I definitely was thinking about the highs and lows of, of the emotions of the reader. Yeah. Oh, and one thing I didn't, um, I just realized didn't make it into the things that we covered is the the two lockdown stories. Can you tell me about those? One is called lockdown and the other is called still lockdown. And they show very different experiences of lockdown. I mean, in, in the first lockdown story, even members of the same family have very different experiences of lockdown, depending on whether or not they actually get leave or whether they're supposed to go to school and are staying home instead, whether they lose their jobs or not. And then those are also very different to the second lockdown story, which is very much like the Zoom meeting and the self-care rituals. So could you tell me a bit about those two stories? The first lockdown was like super inspired by my, so my mom calls home every night. Mm. And then I'd hear what's happening at home. And I'd hear, okay, this one's not getting their terse. And there's the army is actually on the hill. Mm. And um, I think it's in, in lock, lockdown, the first one, where you there's a specific monument that is specific to Aldos. So you know it's actually set in Aldos, mm. which is the Apiberg. It's a place in Aldos. So I, I thought about all of that and how angry I was that the army was there, but the army's not here where we live in Witpurki and, and all of that. And then I wrote that story and I just wanted to show middle class people how difficult it was for, for people who lived in the township when the lockdowns began and what that meant for people living in the townships. And then obviously my husband is a smoker, so I had to put a little bit of that because <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, he tried to find cigarettes throughout the lockdown. 
<laughs> so yeah, that that was um, still lockdown. Was then people like me, the working from home generation. What are we going mm. through? How and how difficult is it is for us as well, especially for people who are separated from their families by provinces who can't go to 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 their families yeah. and. And how work became 10 times more when we actually went on lockdown. So I wanted to show that those two women can both be colored women and both Mm. be within their coloredness, in their colored experiences, but having two very, very different experiences um, in their lives. So yeah, um, it was mm. one of the fun ones to write. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm so happy that enough time has passed now for those stories to start coming out. Lockdown is still such a strange experience that we're all reckoning with. Like we need we need to read about it as well in order to make sense of it for ourselves. Yeah, no, um, a lot of writers that I know were like, we're not going to write about COVID because yeah. we're not going to be those people. And I was also like, I'm not going to write about COVID. And then I ended up writing two stories in a poem. about COVID yeah because it was it was just so much of our lives it's a big part of our lives and it's not a collection about COVID but I'm happy that it made that kind of appearance before we finish Terry Ann can I ask you to read from the other story that you selected okay so I selected the Owens and it's the one story we really didn't talk about in our chat but I wrote the Owens as a an ode to Nathaniel Julius, but also as an ode to the Braza. So I, I really <laughs> wanted, <laughs> I hope like some colored guys can pick this up and, and read this and, and it's just an ode to that. Okay. So the Owens had been blooming together since primary school. They met in Mrs. Bloom's class in grade one and decided that their shared love for Dragon Ball Z and Cracker Snack was enough to build a lifelong friendship. There were four of them at first, Brandon, Elroy, Jared, and Bones. Lucian joined the Owens in grade four when he moved here with his mother from Port Elizabeth. Brandon and Jared liked cars, Elroy liked fighting, and Bones and Lucian liked girls and money. They went through everything together. They were friends when they had all had their first kisses and their first fights. They were always in the same school, except for the year Brandon went to a Christian school and got bullied by the children who were supposed to be saints of the Lord. They went through tough times too, like when Pokemon got cancelled or ETV stopped showing Steven Seagal movies. They had fights amongst themselves too, but they were Braza. They were the Owens. Nothing and no one could shake them. They stayed friends even when Aroy's mother accused Lucian of stealing her Teddy Pendergrass CD. They even stayed friends after Elroy hit Bones in the mouth for calling him a bangkhat. That's it. I love that story. It's got a heartbreaking ending, which is not a giveaway because we know it's inspired by Nathaniel Julius. But it's also a wonderful evocation of, of childhood and camaraderie and this like ride or die friendship that these, that these four boys have, which is really lovely. Terri-Ann, is there anything else that you want to say about your book? Um, no, not really. You know, you, you're going to read White Chalk and then there's going to be some stories that are going to make absolutely <laughs> no sense. And then you can maybe send me a DM on Twitter and be like, what the <laughs> hell? Or you can, you're going to read it and there's going to be some stories that might remind you of home. But it, all in all, I wanted this this to be an ode to our memories and also 
a, an ode to our trauma and us throwing our trauma in the bin with, with therapy. So, yeah, I, I hope that everybody um, enjoys it. Thank you so much, Terry Ann. Thank you so much for talking to me. And also, thank you so much for this collection. I loved it. Other people are going to love it. I think it's going to be really meaningful to people. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you for your beautiful writing. Thank you so much for having me, Fazbin. It is always a pleasure to chat to you. If you're in Cape Town, you can find White Chalk at the Book Lounge. If you're not in Cape Town, please do support your local independent bookstore. I asked Ompile Relea, the founder of Bookamoso, to give me a few recommendations of her favorite narratives of the everyday. Welcome to a reader's community, Ompile. It's lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you. So you're the founder and curator of Bookamoso. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and about Bookamoso? Okay, I am a reader. I love books. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. My life revolves around books and talking about books and encouraging people to buy books. I run an online book club called Book Amuso. I've been doing it for a couple of years. I don't even, I've stopped counting. I don't meet annually with anyone or monthly or whatever. I just share my love for books and anything that's happening around the book space literally every day all the time all day every day except sundays because sundays is family day but yeah (laughs) (laughs) i can relate i also feel like my whole life is books and people ask me what my hobbies are and i'm like books "Books." and then they're like what else i'm like what do you mean mean? (laughs) there's there's nothing to add here but you also promote south african and african literature especially right yes i do i do i i i'm making a point to make noise about African books, African authored books, South African authored books, and Black and women authors that I love. This year, I made a note to myself to try and make noise about self-published books because they tend to be neglected a little bit. I also make noise about independent booksellers and bookshops Mm. and publishers. That's why I really wanted to have you on the podcast because, as you know, the podcast is called A Reader's Community and I feel like that's very much what you're doing as well, is creating community for readers. Definitely, yeah. Today we're talking about books inspired by the theme of stories of the everyday. How I think about this is stories about ordinary people living ordinary lives and going about the business of living, like the, the normal course mm-hmm. of their days. This is the business of work, of family, of home, of relationships, um, those kinds of books. And I, I really love that kind of fiction. And I, is that something that you're also drawn to in fiction? I am. I am. I'm drawn to domestic fiction. Mm. I learned this term so late in my <laughs> my reading life and i was like oh that's all i've been reading mainly <laughs> yeah so now i'm just like obsessed absolutely i ask you to think of books that you thought fit with the theme and books that you love and would recommend to other people what's your first one okay there are so many books right i had to dig deep but my first one is sunyati's the gold diggers very nice. I'm a fan of Sunyati's work. Mm. I've read this one, The Gold Diggers and A Family Affair and The mm. Polygamist, which is her debut. Uh, I recently read it, actually, and I fell in love with it. And this one, The Gold Diggers, is 
about immigration. It's a group of people. They are trekking from Zim in 2008. So it's set in Zimbabwe and Johannesburg. And all of them have the ambition of, of getting to Johannesburg, the city of gold, and starting a new life. It's set in a, in a time of economic dysfunction in Zimbabwe at the time. And the, there's lots of themes in here. It's layered with, I'd say, transactional sex, gender-based violence, human trafficking as well. And the xenophobic attacks in 2008. Mm. I don't want to mention a lot of the themes, but whenever I suggest this book, I always say it taught me how to be kinder to mm. immigrants. Because, I mean, Johannesburg is a place where most of the people who are here, everybody is, like, from somewhere. I'm not from Johannesburg, you know? Yeah. And it, it makes you think that everyday lives of these groups of people is the price that they pay every day. Even from the beginning of the book, they've paid the price. And you see the everyday life of many, many immigrants, like even not just Johannesburg, all over the world. This one this is a great suggestion. I'm ashamed to say I haven't read it yet. I think that's that's one of the things that I love so much about the, the narratives of the everydays. I mean, you know, I guess it's a bit of a cliche to say that reading breeds empathy. But I think it's true. It I does. think there's truth to it. It does. And I think that this kind of fiction in particular does that. Like once you get insight into the like moment to moment of someone's life, I definitely think it does that. Okay, let's hear your next recommendation. My next recommendation was a favorite. Let me see, when was it published? 2018. Yeah, The Ones with Purpose by Nozizwe Cynthia Jele, the author of Happiness is a Four-Letter Word. This is a story of family, a black family in a fictional location called Naledi, if I recall. It's about death. Uh, a family member passes on due to cancer. That is everyday life, you know. The main character, Anele Mabuza, has to carry the family, basically, because after the, following the death, now she's literally the family's caretaker. The, the themes of alcoholism, the themes of loss. Actually, can I read the opening line? Yes. I imagined a dying person's last breath as something resembling an exclamation mark, distinct and hanging mid-air like an interrupted thought. My older sister Fikile's last breath before she dies is nothing of the sort. So already, you know, she set the scene for that loss. Even mm. with, with her as the caretaker of the family and the pressures of also having her own children and having to take care of her own family, Nozizwe also knows how to weave the layers of our societies and, and a black family and how the daily life of a black family goes. So the everyday life for me in this was, was that death. I see a lot of people are experiencing loss through cancer in the black family. So uh, Nozizwe actually brought up a subject that we don't really talk about in society, you know? It also makes me think another thing I love about stories of the everyday or domestic fiction is that it also centers what is typically considered women's work, you know, mm. like caretaking and keeping family members alive, like whether it's because 
whether you're taking care of the sick or just feeding your children, you know, yes. that's, I feel like for some time that wasn't considered serious enough business to be the subject of a book. Um, and I love the the way that these books recenter that and yeah. call it important, you know. Even how, how Annalise's uh, dreams were also supposed to now be put on hold, you know, because she has this to worry about. She has her sister's children to worry about and the mm. brother-in-law and everybody else. I highly recommend it. Great. And let's hear the next one. Okay, this next one, I'm going to keep it short because it's very small as well. This is a book of poetry, Bows and Butterflies by Koli M. I'm not generally into poetry, but when I received this from the author, I was just like, okay, let me let me get into this, you know. This is Koli's emotions. They are raw. They are real. This is her life. There is uh, themes of being a mother, being a wife, um... The struggle of life every day, you know, um, being a friend, being a daughter, being a like just literally womanhood. Yeah. You know, so I related a lot to this because she really described things that I've gone through before, you know, mm. and, and in a, such a simple way. I could relate in the loss that she would experience. Like she, there's a poem, I think it's called Spirit, Body and Soul. It's like a goodbye message mm. to someone that, that she lost. And I feel like she also wrote for her daughters as well through experiencing maybe growing up in their environment or maybe the, the kind of relationship that she has with her partner. So there's really like everything in one that a woman would go through yeah. and she touches on miscarriage you know there's a po poem about miscarriage so really the everyday life of of women and mm. daughters and relationships um marriage you know the realness it's so raw oh my gosh even lust and love do you want to um read us a stanza from a poem that you like uh let me see I found one and this one is called call me by my name you have lost the meaning of your name because you let them call you anything they please they told you their tongues can't click but what they meant was they won't twist their tongues for you i love that is this one self-published yes yeah okay let's hear the next one and then my last book is a fave and it's a man. I do read men, actually. <laughs> <laughs> once but, in a while. <laughs> yeah, once in a while. 98% of my books is literally African black women. But yeah, this is Searching for Simpiwe by Sifiso Mzobe, the author of Young Blood, which is a bestseller. I had a great time reading this book and... I will always recommend it as a if someone wants short stories because it is quick it is it is sharp it is literally so edgy it keeps you on the edge of your seat the entire time and i feel like it could literally be turned into a series like i totally agree i would watch that i definitely watch that can i read a little uh yes. i did a write-up for this book this is a collection of short stories about different kinds of searching the protagonists in each one of, of the stories is searching in some way or the other. A brother is searching for a loved one who has been captured by the Wunga drug before it's too late. 
long lost lovers reuniting and detectives in pursuit of criminals while also highlighting the meagre salaries that these civil servants are served resulting in police corruption this is a collection that shows the realities of any kasi like umlazi where the stories are set the collection shows stories of everyday south africans and it was my 2020 highlight i loved it mm. absolutely absolutely enjoyed it he was he was actually on the podcast in 2020 as well so i also really really love that collection yeah no it's it's one of the best actually i feel like he he's a brilliant author and he really nailed it or with describing everyday lives and everyday struggles of south africans i mean with searching for simpiwe these are things that are happening in the community young men are grabbed by drugs you know girls are are trafficked you know and in an unsuspecting neighborhood i mean and the mom is literally looking at this child going to the shop and then gone you know and things like that happen every day so sifiso did a good job with this one those are great suggestions i love those recommendations where can people find you if they want to follow you on the internet or wherever else i am literally available everywhere as bukamoso b-o-o-k-a-m-o-s-o bukamoso everywhere twitter facebook tiktok <laughs> i'm trying tiktok and i have a website uh, bukamoso.co.za okay great I got to know you through Instagram. I love your Instagram account. <laughs> so thanks for doing that as well. Thank you so and much. And for creating a sense of community among South African readers. Thank you, Fasti. Thanks for listening, everyone. This episode was produced by myself and Andre Burnett. We are members of a podcasting collective called VoiceNote, and you can check out our other work at voicenote.co.za. If you have any comments, we would really love to hear from you. So please do send an email to readerscommunity at gmail.com. Thanks to Terry Ann and Umpile for making the time to be on this episode. And thanks always to our friends at the Book Lounge for their support. This season of A Reader's Community was made possible by a grant from the National Arts Council, which is very much appreciated. Please join us again next week, where we will be talking about sex and death with Yowande Omotosho and with recommendations from Ephemia Chela. Until then, keep reading. <laughs>